Welcome to another episode of Float Your Boat, folks. I'm George Sabados. And I'm Brett Pattinson. Now, Brett, who do we have on today? We have a, a – is it – would it be called doctor? Professor? Professor Paulo D'Souza. D'Souza. Yeah, so he works – All the current, way from Brazil. All the way from Brazil. He's a lovely fellow, but he's currently working for the CSIRO. He worked for a couple of interesting institutions before that. But, um, he did. But he, he's amazing. He – he, he makes these, he builds these little itty-bitty, itty-bitty backpacks. For bees. For bees. Yeah. For our honeybees. I just want to know how the... he manages to tie them down and put the backpacks on the, on the bees. It's very interesting. I can think of something, but I'm not going to say that. But it's not, these ba- it's not backpacks as most people would know. I mean, these... These are not designed for camping so the bees can fly off, you know, into the wilderness and oh. have a bit of a kumbaya around the campfire. Kumbaya, someone's kumbaya. Oh, beehive. Oh, thanks, George. For, that, that's a pretty bad dad joke. Buzz off. No, these, these, these are actually transmitters. That are that are collecting data, that um, um, is useful in so many different ways. But 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 let's not give the whole interview no, away. No, I won't give it away. But he's he's obviously he's he and his co-workers are, are um uh their their aim and is to solve a, an emerging crisis. Well, it's not emerging. It's been going on for quite a few years. It's just that I guess they've they've recognised the problem and now they're taking action. I, uh, we, uh, my last company, Apple and B. Yeah. We had a. We started a, a foundation, a B foundation, and we were donating some of our profits to the CSIRO. So I've known about this f- for many years. In fact, I was actually going to ask Polo if he, if he was one of the the uh, scientists that was involved in the money that we gave to the CSIRO. Right. Okay. So well. Let's- well, why don't we? Yeah. Why don't we buzz off and? Wait, yep, buzz off. Let it be. 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 You are terrible. Yeah. I, seriously, I don't know how I go along with this. Have you ever seen the B movie? Yes, I have. It's a good movie. Yes. Well, let's get him in. Inst- I don't want to hear any more of this. You sure? Yeah. No more. Welcome to the Float Your Boat podcast about how everyday people created their road to success. The highs, the lows, pitfalls and potholes and how they overcame it all. And now, here are your hosts. Paolo, welcome to the studio. Uh, uh, it's great to have you, have you here. I mean, uh, you've come a long way. <laughs> it's great to be here. Absolutely. You're originally from? 
I'm from Brazil. Yeah. yeah. So how does a man from Brazil, from, uh, I understand you used to traipse around the Amazon, yes? You like walking and you go through the Amazon. How did a guy from Brazil end up in uh, was not walking, not swimming. <laughs> so yeah, I I grew up in Brazil and I studied there. I moved to Germany to do my PhD. Uh, moved so, back to Brazil, went to US. Uh, was working in France for a company and and I saw a position with CSRO uh, and I decided to come and apply mm. for the position. Here I am for ten years already. It's good to know that you didn't lose your personality in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> So, so Paulo, so Paulo, you grew up in Brazil, yeah. in in a poor part of Brazil, or your family? Tell yeah, us about your family. My father was in the army, and because of that, we have to move frequently. So I was in, I, I was born in in very close to Paraguay, and moved to my grandfather's farm uh, in the Amazon region. I grew up there, moved to Brasilia, lived in Rio, lived in São Paulo, and and the coast of Brazil. So. Brothers and do you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, I have two sisters. Yeah, and are they still in Brazil? Still in Brazil. Yeah. So, so tell me, how does a? I mean, for those for those of our listeners that have never been to the Amazon, I've never been there. Um, what was it like growing up in and around the Amazon? Yeah, it's it's wonderful. I think I discovered nature by living there, and it, it's as noisy as as would be a CBD of a large city. Really? Especially at night. And you see you are not alone. You think you are alone in the jungle. You are not. The amount of insects and mammals and rats and so many birds vocalizing, it's unbelievable. And, and of course, frogs. And it takes you, really, if you are not there for a while, it will take easily three days for you to learn how to sleep in such a noisy place. Um, and as you move in and make noise because you don't know how to work in a jungle like a, a native animal, except if you are an Indian, then you would know how to. Um, the forest becomes quiet around you when you understand that the whole forest is alive. And how is that possible that you see that much life present? And, and it, is, it is really a very interesting way to connect to, to nature. Is that when you first sort of fell in love with the idea of... Um... Yeah, because everything is connected. That was, a, a, was really fascinating to see how birds would, would become active when there will be some rain or insects will respond to storms coming in different ways. Um, and how is that connected in such a, such, a, such a small detail and around the weather changing as well. So uh, it, is, it is fascinating to observe that interconnection and how species use different types of trees to move around or to get food and to defend. And you see that whole relationship uh, of all these species in, in a complex environment like that happening. And as a child, I would see that. I have mm. seen that. And we have uh, locals that were... Really, I was a local in a way, but they they were uh, sharing the knowledge they have about how how the species there were interacting and how we should do things there. Um, so it was really great a mm. way of of having the first hand experience with what looks like nature and what would be then for me natural sciences. So, so the 
I take it when you're talking about the locals, you're talking about indigenous people of the <coughs> of the area, not not the ones that are descendants of indigenous, the Portuguese. Yeah. 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 And um, is is does Brazil? I mean, did it feel like you were from another nation when you were in amongst them, or everyone felt like they were Brazilians, but they were just completely different? No, all Brazilians, and they are proud of the, the heritage they have. Of right. course, mixed. Uh, but the, the knowledge they have, it's passed through generations. There is nothing written. Uh, and this is how they, they teach us that black ants, when they come swarming, is because there will be a storm and you should really get protected. Even if the sky looks blue, just, just get yourself in a safe place because a storm is coming. And you see that really quickly, that comes, and they know it. And there's nothing written in any books about it. So they know because they have been... Passing, they pass that knowledge, mm. uh, generations after generations of those black ants coming out in large numbers when there is a huge storm coming. I mean, huge. Yeah. And you, you've, you obviously became curious about all these things, and and is that what led to your you know, direction in life? I think so. The curiosity, it's it's the probably the raw material for for any scientist. Uh, if you add purpose to that, then you have something really powerful. And I, I think that as more, the more we evolve in, in professionally, you will start really looking at how can I be, uh, how can I make a difference? How can I bring purpose to what I do? And how can I really improve the life of the next generation that is coming after me? So it, it can be done by anyone. Uh, in any way that you find your purpose. But once you find that, then plus curiosity, then it becomes really the, the toolbox that you need to make things happen. So you studied hard to, because of that purpose, I take it, you studied hard to become a scientist and moved from Brazil. Yeah. Right. Did you study in Brazil to start with? or did Yeah, you... I studied in Brazil. I I started with electrical engineering, uh, and then it was not for me. I thought that I have to really understand why things work the way they are, and I, I then moved to physics. Uh, I studied physics. It took me it took me nine years to finish my undergrad studies wow. um, because I moved. Literally, I have done two full courses to to do what I want. Um, then I did my masters. Uh, already thinking about my PhD and then I moved to Germany uh, to do my PhD there. So, it, yeah, it, I had to, to study a lot and still scientists will continue studying because the, the area evolves quickly. So you need to keep up with what is going on constantly. Forever at school. Forever, yeah. It is, and also you need to be prepared to change. Uh, though I am in love with what I do, but maybe I will just give up for a new passion and and this is how we professionally, we changed uh, over time. And science is not different. I think scientists today are not just that scientist studying that topic for their whole life. Uh, they need to change, they need to adapt, they need to repurpose what they do. They need to um, look at ways that the science can be applied and learn new skills and, mm. become, and continue becoming really uh, uh, relevant to, to the community. So I, I take it that your your PhD subject is was very different to what you're doing now, obviously. 
Yeah, in, in many ways, yes. So uh, you have evolved. Yeah, my, my PhD was about the miniaturization of an instrument that ended up being selected by the European Space Agency and by NASA to their missions to Mars. Start, two, one, booster ignition, and liftoff of the space shuttle Discovery, returning to the space station, taking away from future missions. So I have three instruments on the surface of Mars, one that, was, one that has been sent by the European Space Agency and the other ones that have been sent by, by NASA. Did it have your name on them? Uh, yeah, I can't tell you, otherwise I have to kill you after, that's a secret. Is it still top secret? No, no, I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> good on you, George. Okay, sorry. <laughs> George, a bit slow on the uptake. He had a few wines last oh, night. No, oh, no, look, uh, yeah, the, the instrument is pretty small, so I, yeah, I, I have a small name as well. But yeah, the, there are ways that you can get your name. You there, don't have a small name. <laughs> the the instrument with ESA crashed on the surface of Mars, so I have an instrument in pieces there. It was my Christmas present in 2003. Not a good one. And just a week after we landed with Spirit, the first of the twin hovers of the Mars Exploration Hover project from NASA. Um, and then three weeks after that, we landed with Opportunity. And Opportunity uh, and Spirit were supposed to work for three months. And guess what? They, they were working all the time. They, came, they didn't stop. Uh, we had... Um, Spirit working for six years, uh, and Opportunity uh, is active until today. Uh, we have, over the last weeks, a few problems to get connection with Opportunity because of dust storm on the surface of Mars, but let's see how we go. How does that happen? I mean, they obviously um, <coughs> estimate the lifespan of a, of a vehicle or, or, a, or an instrument, and then it far exceeds expectations. How does that happen? Yeah, there are... Two, I think two things there in a lesson learned. Uh, the first, the first two things is the, the, the way we collect energy or the way we generate or harvest energy on the surface of Mars with those rovers are primarily with using uh, solar panels. So we have the rover deck with solar panels. Uh, we knew it will get dusty. Looking at previous missions like Sojourner that landed. The mission was called Pathfinder in 1997 that landed with Sojourner, a small rover. And that rover is about the size of a microwave, um, really got a lot of dust. And we calculated the amount of dust that will be on the deck, and that will lead us for about three months of mission. But we had dust devils coming and cleaning the rover. The winds and mass brings dust, but they also clean. And because of that, we just got energy again, just like... Know, uh, magic, and then we continue working. Uh, but the machine also found a lot of problems. And the second part is that we have a fantastic team of engineers uh, at JPL, a Jet Propulsion Lab, that really have made a difference. Uh, fantastic group. And uh, we have rovers, for example, driving backwards when they were supposed to drive forward because we have six wheels and one of the wheels got stuck. We can't move it. Then we have like a rover trying to drive in a sandy place just like Bondi Beach. And you get really five wheels and an anchor because you can't move. You dig mm. with, the, with that. So you need to drive backwards, trenching the soil as you go. But the machine was not built for that. And this is where the engineering... Uh, uh, genuity of this group came about and, and made the whole difference. 
And the lesson learned is that we have not been prepared for the success. We always think that something could go wrong. But actually, this mission was overwhelmingly successful. We, I, we could never dream in our best dreams that we would be able to run this mission for one year. Mm. And we are here 15 years after, still with the rover active, which is something that we never think about, that actually you should be prepared for the success. And none of us have been asked our employers, for example, to... Uh, let us keep working with the rover on Mars. I was working for a mining company at that time. And I could say, well, can I continue working with NASA in this? Uh, actually, we are not exploring ores on Mars. We are exploring here on Earth. Were you contracted uh, by NASA just for a short period of time? And then you had to move on? Yeah, then I have to move on. But I continue as a participating scientist. So, so you can we... still tap into the frequencies from... Uh... Yeah, I got, I got a lot of images and I can really? show you a few yeah, images and, and data comes from, from, from NASA. And we use infrastructure in Australia to collect data from NASA. So we have the deep space network with dishes that are pointing to the sky in Spain, in California, and off Canberra in Tindibila. And that one is actually managed by CSIRO. So <coughs> we look at deep space. So you have backdoor access. Room. Yeah. <laughs> I, we collect the data. I, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking I have trouble putting the lid on my teacup here and you're talking about something that's way out there, like so far away and yet it's still functioning after all this time. It's just, it's a, that blows my mind really. Is there life on Mars? things that I am able to do, I feel just privileged to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, and that's the best way to define what I feel, but very humble. Well, we still have a lot to do. And mm. if you look in terms of technology, it's fascinating to see, you can see Mars on the sky in, in Australia uh, nowadays or during the night. Um, today, so you can see it's beautiful there. And I look at that and say, well, I have instruments on the surface yeah. of that little uh, shiny red dot on the sky. But uh, we're still just the beginning of a journey of exploring. We're still in the caves. Uh, we are not even able to, to travel to the nearest star. And uh, therefore, we are not really uh, doing anything at all in terms of the exploration of the universe as it is. So it is, it is just the beginning. So we are still literally living the caves at well, the moment. I mean, uh, your work today is very different to, to that work, like space exploration, but w what do you envisage will be possible in the near future? Uh, it's difficult to predict. Um, I, think, I think the challenges that we will face, and I, I, th I think the problems we're dealing with are complex by nature and they become more and more complex. It is not a problem that we can solve with a single experiment in the lab anymore. So you need to get scientists to work together, to be able to uh, not only working together from different disciplines, uh, with different support, not only from scientists, from engineers, technicians, and, and communities, working together to solve problems. That is the biggest challenge. If we are able to make that happen, then we can solve big problems and we can do things that are really unbelievable today. Um, 
in doing that, we need to also realize that we are very short-sighted as human beings. We are always looking at the short-term gains. And looking at the short-term gains, we are always also um, uh, very, very limited in seeing the consequences of the things we develop. So we develop tools that enable us to um, solve a problem and we create three, four other problems. I'll give an example. If some years ago there was the only way for you to know if you have bipolar disorder is to go through a psychologist and sit down and have 10 sessions and come to a conclusion with this professional guidance that's actually, that's what you have. Today you can just do a DNA analysis and look in four genes. And if these four genes are there active, then you would say you have bipolar disorder for sure. It costs only probably $300 to make that test. Would you do it? It's much cheaper than going and much faster than just going to a psychologist. If the answer is yes, probably it's much easier mm -hmm. than I know. Uh, in principle, you solve a big problem. Yeah. But what would you do if you know that? Would you have kids? Because it's genetic. You can transmit that to the next generations. Uh, but what if your employer knows that you have bipolar disorder? Would you be promoted? And your life insurance, would your policy cost the same? Uh, would you get a visa to go to another country if they can have access to that information? So it, the, the consequences of solving a problem can be far worse than the problem itself. This is where we are facing a really, really big challenge. Uh, we can do wonderful things in the future, but we need to pay attention to the consequences of what we develop. And I don't think we are well instrumented to do it. So listeners, just remember, if you like Float Your Boat, go and review us on whichever app you're using at the moment, whether it be... On your Android or your iPhone. Yes. And be sure to review, uh, find the review tag. And yep. click on that and write a nice review. Or yes. And subscribe yes. because all of that goes into pushing us up the rankings a little bit more so we can spread the love of Float Your Boat out there to the real world. And apart from all that, we really would appreciate it. We would. We appreciate all of that stuff. And, and if you've got somebody that you think would be great for us to interview, um, email us at fybpodcast at gmail.com. Terrific. Thank you. I think the bees is, is one example uh, where we see the need for a problem. There was nobody to come us and ask us, hey, can you do it? We saw it and we knew it. We have to do something about it. And we, we invited partners to come along. But how did you see it? I mean, there's lots of things to see in life. How did you see that particular thing? Because it's impactful. I'll give, for, for the bees, for example, why we decided to do it, that's the purpose, the curiosity and the, the purpose in, in terms of, of, um, of bees, it's, it's simple. They are going through a decline. And over the last 50 years, the bees are going down in terms of numbers. And bees are just one of so many other pollinators. So this is just an example. Um, scientists believe that if bees are going down, other pollinators will be also being uh, reduced in numbers. But bees we can see, we can domesticate, we can have a hive. They are like our pets. Mm. Um, they fly out and they come back every day. So if I have a box full of bees, they will come back. If I have a box full of flies, they will fly away and never come back. They are not social. 
And we are fascinating about the structure of the hive and how the colony works and all that structure. Uh, but they are going down. And if you look in the future, the next three decades, we need to produce 60% more food to feed our global population. This is not sustainable. If we continue with the decline of bees the way it is going, and the demand for food going up, we will have a problem. When this problem is going to happen, I don't know, might be next year, but definitely will be within the next 30 years. And how that problem is going to be, we're going to feel that problem coming, will be inflation first on products we take for granted. And we take for granted that they remain cheap. <laughs> cheap today. You can go and buy an apple for a fraction of a dollar today. So when we have Yazi coming to the coast of, of Queensland a few years ago, the price of bananas in Tasmania went bananas. So it was $14 <laughs> yeah. dollars a kilo. I remember. Yeah. I remember well. Yeah. And my children didn't stop eating them either. <laughs> That's the point. So the, the kids will stop eating products we take for granted. Are you willing to pay $100 for a bag of apples? Maybe you are, but you can't. And if you can and you're willing to, that's fine. But not for everyone. Mm. Not all Australian families can afford to pay $100 for a bag of apple. So there will be no apple in the lunchbox of kids. The quality of nutritional content that we have for our kids, for our communities, will change. So this is in a developed country that we can eventually afford to pay more for products we take for granted. Now, if... If you go for places in Africa or South America, you need to produce the grains this year to feed the population this year. If you don't produce, you have starvation. Then you have waves of famine, refugees leaving the country because there's no food. Very similar to what we saw in the 80s in Eastern uh, Africa. So, this is a very much problem for everyone. So we need to do something about this. I can't sit down and wait and see this is happening and we are not doing something. This is where we, we stop at CSR and say, hey, we need to do something about this. What is in there? Who are the scientists who's working in this area that we have at CSR and beyond? and get this group together and think about a solution on what we can do. You're hopeful there is a solution. Uh, we don't know, because we don't know what's the problem. Science is struggling to understand what's going on with the bees. So, so uh, <clears throat> let's just... Because we, are, I guess in the preamble we did talk about what you're doing, but so essentially your part of the this program is that you've created... Uh, a backpack for for a bee, <clears throat> so you can track their movements to see if we can find the problem. Yeah, so I will I will step back to to come yeah. to that okay. point. So what we have is a uh, a complex problem, and this problem is complex because there are many causes of a potential decline of bees. So you have pesticides, or the use of pesticides, or misuse misused of them. Uh, pathogens, parasites, climate change with extreme weather events, heat waves becoming more frequent, or cold fronts, storms uh, becoming more and more frequent, more intense with climate change. You have 
air pollution, water contamination, depletion of natural habitats with deforestation. You have monoculture, so you don't give bees other option but just the pollen of a specific culture. And they can't have anything. It's just like asking you to eat bread every day for a month. I mean, you can't. And it's just you feel just tired or just chips. You want to mm. eat chips for the whole month. Uh, you need diversity. And this is not different with the bees. So they need diversity of flowers and pollens, mm. uh, nectar sources, and you don't give them. Uh, so all these factors or a combination of those factors are driving bees to a decline and maybe something else. Maybe they are going through a natural decline that you would see from bees or other species. So what we have then is a complex scenario of different factors affecting bee health. How can we measure one or combination of those factors affecting a given hive? So the way we thought was to get bees monitored, but you open a hive, the old bees look the same. Yeah. They are twins. I, I can't distinguish them. I can distinguish young bees with old bees because the younger bees are more hairier than the, the old ones, but that's it. So the way to do it is to give them a license plate, or to give them a, a, you know, registration. a, number, a registration number or anything like that. So we found a way to do with with uh, microchips. So like we microchip dogs and cats, we microchip bees. But these microchips are of a different size. Yeah, they have to be pretty small, otherwise the bees won't be able to carry. <laughs> so we grew it, it, and it weighs about a third of what a honeybee can carry in, in water, honey, or, or, or pollen. Hmm. So we put that backpack on, on the bee using super glue. We try all different types of sophisticated <laughs> agglomerants until we run out of those, and we have to do some experiments. And we, okay, let's go to the supermarket and get some. Good old-fashioned super It was glue. the best. <laughs> 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 so we tend to over-engineer things, yeah. Very common science to do that. So, yeah, very expensive agglomerants and all these things, and, uh, yeah, just the super glue was the best. Yeah. So we used that to put a little bit of super glue, glue on the bee, and let the bee fly. And as the bee flies out and in the hive, we monitor then the responses of how active this bee is. And then we can provide bees with a little bit of pesticides or expose them to a stress factor like pesticide doses, sublethal. The bee won't die, but they will get intoxicated. And then we see how this bee will behave compared to bees not exposed to that. And this is how we start looking at those factors. And quickly we realize that we can't do this alone. I can't run all those factors in my lab, and this is where scientists were going wrong about it. This model of science today is that you sit down and you have a great idea, you hide that from anybody else because you need to find, you have to be the one that makes, makes the original discovery, discovery yeah. and I go and publish first. You know, and that process of small discoveries is not leading us for advancement of knowledge. So the way the business model for scientists is working is broken, especially for big problems. So I can't just, you know, you look at the whole community, we share published data, but we don't share or publish results, not always data, but results or interpretation of our experiments. But we are not collaborating for a real advancement of the knowledge. So we thought, okay, if we give these backpacks to scientists worldwide, 
would they be willing to share the data and publish together? So we're going to use the same technology, the same experimental protocols. We use the same data format so everybody can understand each other in terms of data sets. And then we will publish together. And yes, they are willing to do so. So we have experiments being conducted in Kenya, in United Emirates, in Mexico, in Brazil, in Argentina, in the UK, uh, in New Zealand, across Australia. So we create this global initiative of scientists working together and they are sharing data openly. So we have examples of scientists working with radiation in the UK, scientists working with radiation in Chernobyl area in Ukraine, and scientists working with the same bees in pristine environments like in New Zealand. And they share the data and the quality of the paper they're going to publish is just completely different if they were working in isolation. So what we have done is to bring scientists to work together. Each one brings a piece of a puzzle, very complex puzzle. And hopefully we will get enough data to see the big picture of what is going on. So we will understand the problems really well and the relationship of all different causes of this problem. Then we will be able to develop solutions for those problems. We are not yet there. We are trying to understand the problem. There is just one problem, time. The time mm. is ticking. So, so you, can't see, you can't see how long it will take for all the data to come in we and build a picture. We have very interesting results already that help us yes. at least to measure what's the impact of different factors and to understand if a hive is going through a struggle and will collapse. Um, things like, for example, CCD or colony collapse disorder is a name coined by American scientists in, if I'm not wrong, in Pennsylvania, where they open a hive. The hive is absolutely healthy, busy, bees are working, everything's fine. Next day you go there, open the hives, there's no bee there, all gone. This is not swarming. Swarming is part of the hive goes with the old queen and leave a new, a new queen behind. This is all gone, all, all dead. And we don't know why. In one day, all bees are dead. But now we can predict when that is going to happen. We know days in advance because of the activity of the bees, what is going on. So we can predict the life expectancy of bees, for example. Is that based on them having the transmitters on their on their backs? Is yes. that right? For us, it works like if you go to a GP yep. and the, B, the GP says, okay, we have a look at your blood tests and you have a little bit of cholesterol here. You said that you are sedentary, you're not doing exercises, mm, you smoke uh, and uh, overweight. Uh, you look at, and probably you have a little bit of diabetes in the family and heart attacks and things like that. So your life expectancy, it's not... It's not really great. Mm -hmm. If we stop smoking, it's likely that your life expectancy will reduce, uh, will improve in 10 years. So we were able to do the same work of a GP today by looking at those stress factors and see what's the impact that those stress factors will have in the life expectancy of the bees. And you need bees to live for a given time for the hive to be sustainable. If, if it's not living for that time, then the colony is not sustainable and collapse. So, no. so <clears throat> excuse me. So, well, how long does is it does the average bee live? Uh, usually, honeybees uh, will be uh, if it's a worker uh, will be around um, 
three weeks inside the hive once they emerge from larvae to brood. So they, they come out as uh, about three weeks and they stay inside the hive that time. Mm-hmm. And then they start flying. At the moment they start flying from our results, uh, what you would see, it's uh, a bee leaving about 40 hours of flight. What it means is that in average, a bee will be uh, leaving for one week if it flies a lot, 40, 40 hours. For example, in the spring, bees will live very short because they are very active. In the winter, the bees can live months because they're not flying that much. Uh, so the, the life of a bee is measured actually in hours of work uh, so, outside. And it's like a battery, so it lasts as long as you're using that. Right. So fly, flying takes a lot out of them. Takes a lot of them, yeah. So, so is there a different lengths of um, life expectancy in different countries? Have you got that sort of data yet? Absolutely the same. If the environment is pristine, uh, it's it's clear environment. The hive is strong. Everything is it's ticking there. The bees will live the same time. It doesn't matter if it's a honeybee from New Zealand, from Australia, from Mexico, from Brazil, from the US, or from UK. It's going to be the same. Time. Even pretty n- much the native same. Australian bees? The native Australian bees have been mostly impacted by the presence of honeybees. Uh, they were brought by the settlers when they came. Um, so the honeybees we have are not from Australia. Mm. So we have a lot of native bees. Uh, but they have been impacted by the presence of that first. But they're still around. And Australia is still pristine environment. Um, we We need to look at the number of factors that could impact. Climate change would definitely impact many of those ecosystems and definitely then insects and pollinators in general. Expansion of agriculture and using of pesticides, for example, could also impact them uh, in a given, in a given uh, way. So it is, it is pretty complex uh, system to, to work and to understand. So what fascinating things have you been able to uh, uh, determine from these little transmitters? I mean, have you been able to map out the way they swarm, the way they fly, the way they navigate? Oh, geez, there's so many things. Uh, let's say bees do pyjama parties, for example. We thought that the bees were... They do. They have their own hive. This is their hive. Uh, nah, 20% of the workers, they change hives. So what happens is, let's imagine <laughs> that we have a bee called Candy, and bee leaves the hive the morning, goes to work, and then at the end of the day, she moved to another hive nearby and stays in that hive for three days, talking to the friends, having a big party, and then she comes back to her hive, not alone. She brings friends with her. Really? And stay there for a few days, and they keep doing this mingling all the time, about 20% of, of the hives. We also noticed that Candy doesn't like the hive of Mary. She never goes there. And anybody from Mary's hive comes to Candy's hive. They don't like each other for a reason. It might be associated to the drones or to the queens, but they don't like each other. But both are happy to go to Joanne's hive. They go to a third <laughs> hive, no problem at all. Uh, but they can mix each other. So this is, this is one, one interesting thing that we saw. Interesting, curious, but useful. Because we thought, for example, that diseases will be spread through drone agglomerations. So drones are just like boys. They leave the hives, leave their homes, go to the pub to watch 
the game and having a beer and then go back home. <laughs> this is exactly what the drones do. They fly together, get agglomerated, stay there for a while. We're just waiting a queen to fly by. If the queen is not coming today, say, okay, let's go back home. And they fly back to their home. Because they get together in an agglomeration, so they would transmit diseases through that way. So we thought that diseases and things like varroa mites or other pests would be transmitted through that process. But actually, the workers can do it. So the way you manage hives in an apiary has to take into account that 20% of the bees will be so, changing. So are they, tri are they tribal by nature? Yeah. 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 Uh, we have, for example, the bees in the Amazon, the stingless bees there, very small, uh, it's about the size of a microwave, the boxes that they, they have, the hives. Yep. It's much smaller communities, about 2,500 bees, 1,000 bees there. Uh, so we, we have those hives in shelves, and we have just like the one shelf one meter above the ground, and the other one a meter and a half above the ground, and we have those shelves there. Just like in a shop, you go there to see which microwave you'd like to buy, it's just the same. And the bees do this exchange of, of hives. They change hives if the hives are in the same shelf. The bees from the lower shelf will exchange the hives without any problem. The bees from the top shelf will do the same, but the bees from the top don't come to the, to the bottom one. And the mm -hmm. ones on the bottom don't go to the top. We go and change the hives. We take one hive from the bottom, put on the top, take the other one on the top, put on the bottom at night. Let the bees go, they don't do it. They continue changing just at that level. Oh. We have, why is this happening? So we had kids coming to see the experiments in the Amazon for a community nearby, and we were talking to them and explained them what, this, what was going on. And, I, and they asked, why is this happening? I said, I have no idea. Anybody here would know it? And then one of the kids, I think it's like seven years old, he raised the hand and said, I know it. So that's nice. So why do you think it's happening? It's because the food in the forest is on the trees. So the bees need to tell the friends where the food is. They should know it exactly what's the height. So that's why they know so well what, what the height of their hive is. Right. <laughs> this kid was absolutely right. So you tested that out and found it to be true? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Did you make him a CSIRO scientist? <laughs> <laughs> no, but he might this be one day. Where you don't need to be a scientist to make discoveries. You, 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 yeah, that's you, amazing. And you cannot mm. just say, you as a scientist, I am the only one able to do it. A child can teach you a lot. Mm. But Paolo, <laughs> you know? how, how, okay, so they need to know the height of the food in the forest, but how do they navigate in the forest with oh, yeah. the canopy being the way it is. And it's with, with, with the sun. I know it's, it's, it's of course, it's quite, uh, it's not possible to see the sun in the, in, in the, in the forest. It's, it's very dense, but the bees can. They how know where the they? sun is. This is how they are. Uh, they can see ultraviolet. They can see, even if it's cloudy, you can see the sun. They know where the sun is. Um, they are really, really well prepared for that. We have done experiments of two. One challenge for us was to know what's the area of influence that a hive has in the ecosystem or any changes in the ecosystem in a given ratio will impact that hive. So imagine that you are in your house. This is the hive. And how far any change around your house will impact you. 
likewise areas that you will impact or you will contribute if within your, your neighborhood. So we did that. So we got a hive put in the middle of nowhere, get a bee from that hive, put in a, with a backpack, we put in a little box, and we drove out with that. We just walk away with that bee for one kilometer and release the bee, and the bee flies back to the hive. We get another bee next day, many bees, and go two kilometers away, release the bees, and the bee flies back, finds the way back. Three kilometers, flies back, and then we go until the bees don't come back. So we know what's the impact area, the ratio that the bees will be able to fly, and will be half of that, the area of influence, because the bees need to go and come back. Cool. Sure. So we have done those experiments as well. We just published a paper about different species and how they are. So in the interest of that is some mining companies operating in the Amazon. They need to understand what's the impact of their operations. For example, if you have a blasting in a, in a mine, the shock wave will, will navigate through the ground and that will impact bees to a given distance. So we need to know how far the hives will be to not be impacted by that activity. So if you have hives within the range, what we call the range of impact, then you need to remove that hive away to minimize the impact of the operation of the mine in the Amazon on pollinators, which are essential for the wealth of the forest. How many, um, how long has how long's this program been going for? How long have you been making backpacks? We're already doing that for Almost five years. Right. Yeah, we have today more than half a million bees with backpacks worldwide. Wow. And for each one, we have a effort logging. We know every day what the bees were doing, how many times they fly in and out, each one of those. How, 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 are, they, how are they logged? I mean, obviously, you need supercomputers to put it all together. I mean... How is all that data collected? Yeah, there is a small computer that we use in there. It's a, it's a very small, it's, it's about a matchbox size. Uh, it's produced by Intel, and Intel gave us all the computers we need for this initiative. Um, we, we collect the data through that, so we have antennas that reads just like an e-tag e that you have in your car when you mm. drive by tolls and reads that. <laughs> So, so they that's fly the and fly out. It's yeah. the same. As the bee pass by, you detect, hey, Mary just came by. Yep. Yeah. Charge her a dollar. Left, stay out outside for an hour and a half, came back, wow. stay inside the hive for three hours watching TV, is leaving again. So we have all that information. And we can see how bees change their behavior depending on temperature, depending on moisture, depending on concentration of pollutants in the environment. So we can relate that change in behavior with and also impact in the long term. Uh, it is not enough, for example, to see the impact of pesticides on bees exposed to pesticides. You expose one bee to pesticides, you see what's the impact on that bee, but also you could see the impact in the next generations in the hive that will be fed with pollen produce, or with pollen or nectar contaminated with pesticides. So you can see how that will impact the next generation and the next generation of the hive, how weak or strong that will be uh, over time. So this is what these kind of experiments are needed in the long term. So you need to run that through the time. And having Northern Hemisphere working and Southern Hemisphere scientists working at the same time allow us to continue with a very high density of data being collected. Is there, um, is, there, is there things that 
people can do, you know, like everyday people to help the, this process? Like, you know, should we be planting certain plants in our gardens? You know, is, is that going to help? There are a lot of things, uh, and they're very simple things to do. The first one, have a garden. Uh, if you if you can have diversity of flowers, and it's not it's not really difficult to see which bees or which flowers bees prefer to visit. Mm. Try to get them in your small veranda if you have, or in your yard, your garden, in your in, at, at your home, or maybe in the office. Or you know, you have so many hives in Sydney in in top of roofs, for example, and they need flowers. So if you have flowers, the bees will come. They will be there. And uh, seasonal flowers, so you can see it through the season, the ones you can have. This is one way you can definitely help them. Uh, sometimes, uh, of course, uh, you you can look at sugar water solutions and things like that, so you can have a little bit of syrup for, for bees to come and, and drink. That could help them eventually. But having flowers is absolutely great. That's the easiest, the natural way. Not only help bees, but will make your, your house a little bit more... Uh, Beautiful, yeah, for sure. Uh, the other thing you can do is definitely get more information about it. Look at the local beekeepers association. Go there, have a conversation with them. They are a fascinating group. They know so much about bees. Mm. And they are so willing, uh, willing to help and to provide with information. Maybe you can have a small hive as well in your place. They can assist you in, in making that uh, not only an enjoy, enjoyful um uh, Activity, but also it will be really, uh, it's, it's beautiful it's, it, to see the hive working and, and you definitely going to have a lot of fun by doing that and minimize any risks of, of having and give you technical support for that on how to work with bees. Uh, you, you can also look for local produce all the time as well instead of having uh, produce produced outside and, you know, far from you. It's not that necessarily uh, imported produce is bad, but if you can look at local produce, it's something that can definitely help. Organic, not using pesticides and all this would definitely be a way that you can strengthen that market and making them stronger and making them more active. Yeah, I can s probably I can see clearly now uh, from... Jimmy Cliff. Hothouse flowers. Uh, hothouse flowers. Yeah. Hothouse uh, flowers. Yeah, they did the a version they, of it. Oh, yeah, that was a cover. Well, many people have covered it over the years. Who was the original? Jimmy, Jimmy Cliff. Cliff. Jimmy Cliff. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a beautiful song. Uh, but also, it's 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 beautiful the the, the instruments and voices, mm. and I think it's a, it's a nice it's a nice song. Yeah, I like it. Well, George, have you got any more? I, I do. I do. What's your vision for the future? I'm definitely optimistic. I hope we will be able to solve those problems. Uh, and my fear is that we are not going to offer you know, our kids the what we experienced. Uh, it's something we need to do something about it. We have a responsibility. I don't want to fail towards my next generation, but not doing that. So uh, time is running. The problems are getting more and more complex. Uh, we need to make, make things happen. And conversations like this, definitely, and people listening to this, it's, it's a really fantastic way to raise awareness on those problems and get more people to think about how to improve the way we live. Mm, uh, mm. And if we get more and more people, definitely I'm, I'm continuing uh, the journey of, of really making a, a splash and, and getting an impact out there. So I hope we will have a great work uh, done and a great future for us. 
uh, here on Earth. We don't need to go to, to Mars to do it. <laughs> I hope so too. Paolo, thanks so much for coming Thank in today. Thank you very much, Paolo. We thanks. need more people like you. Fantastic. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you.